invite you this morning, open your copy of God's Word again to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 1 this morning as Hollis read, verses 9 through 20. Uh, perhaps you've heard the term, or maybe you've known it by a different name, vasovagal syncope. That's a medical term. It means spontaneous non-medical fainting spells. That's what that is. You know, people who, for, for no medical reason, just pass out. Some people uh, experience this when they see needles, you know, so uh, vaccines and shots and stuff are difficult for them. Some people have this when they see blood, like can't see blood going out. Uh, I don't really have this, but if I were, if I did, it would be about like fingernail and toenail injuries. Don't handle those well at all. Don't send me your pictures. I don't need that in my life. Some of the funniest and I think best like... uh, Examples of this, the ones that, that are, are most entertaining to watch anyway, are those people that are on like the slingshot ride at the state fair. You know, it's the two people sitting in chairs next to each other, and this contraption is connected to bungee cords, and they just shoot those people up in that contraption into the sky, and they bounce around for a while. And, and inevitably, there are you know, two people there in the, uh, in the slingshot ride, and one of them is just so happy to be there, and the other one, usually the man of the pair, it's usually a husband and wife, boyfriend and a girlfriend, usually the girl is just like so so excited to be there on that ride and the man is crying for his mother like he hasn't since days of you know playground bullying or whatever and he's the one screaming mama no mama no mommy please and then they shoot him up into the air and the guy passes out and he's just flopping around in the ride spontaneous non-medical fainting spells there's nothing wrong with those those people and those, but just something in our brain triggers. And, and uh, uh, psychologists and neuroscientists don't, don't really know why that happens. Just something, our brain sees something or, or makes connections and, and looks at a, a circumstance in life and says, nope, not doing that. And out they go. This morning, we come to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and we see a vision That if ever there was a vision that would cause a spontaneous, non-medical fainting spell, it is this one. This glorious appearance of Jesus to John, his servant. And this glorious appearance of Jesus that John describes for the church. That we might share in the, the joy, the worship, the holy terror, if I can put it that way, of being in the presence of Jesus Perhaps you are tempted to faint when you just think about studying Revelation. This week I had a couple spells of that myself, thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I told Pastor Danny, I know why, I know now why pastors, so many pastors don't preach through Revelation. And it's not because they're scared of preaching it. It's because there's so much reading to do. Um, And I just don't know if I have that much time. Uh, This morning, as we look at this wonderful vision, beautiful vision of the divine Son of Man, we have this main idea that comes to us from the text today. This is the point. You get nothing else from this morning. Walk away with this, that Jesus, risen, glorious, sovereign, as he appears to John, Jesus grants courage and strength to the faithful. Jesus, risen, glorious, and sovereign, as we see him displayed in these verses, grants courage and strength to the faithful. Recognizing this in these wonderful verses, we ought then to worship Jesus in light of all that he is. Look him square in the face and behold his majesty and draw strength and courage for faithfulness from him. 
Remember last week we said we, the first thing we need to keep in mind as we read this book of Revelation is the original purpose for which it was written. And that original purpose is to inspire and to motivate the church of Jesus Christ Christians to endure with faithful, peaceful perseverance even until the end. That's how we overcome. That's how we conquer in the world today is by enduring in faithfulness to Jesus. And this vision of Jesus is meant to inspire and motivate and encourage us for just that. I'm so grateful for Hollis uh, reading the scripture aloud for us this morning, and I pray uh, that God will bless him as he does. Um, Friends, if you are interested in being a part of leading the saints in worship by reading God's word aloud, um, go to your Bible study groups today, and there's a sign-up sheet in there for members of First West to uh, leave your name and some information so I or Pastor Danny can get in touch with you so you can read aloud and be blessed in so doing the words of this book as we move through it. So as we come to this text, we see it kind of break down into about three parts. First of all, verses 9 through 11, we see the Lord's commission. This is a vision of Jesus, the risen Jesus, appearing to John, and he commissions John to do something. As we move here into these verses from where we were last week, just uh, 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 John describing the voice that he heard from God who said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, who was and is and is to come. Now John takes us to the beginning of the vision experience that will really take up the rest of the 21 and a half chapters that are left of Revelation. First, the apostle identifies himself. He's John, the apostle and disciple of Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last week in our introduction to this book. But he calls himself, he describes himself as a partner in tribulation. That is a a partner, a brother, a fellow participant in affliction, persecution, hardship for the name of Jesus. He's a partner in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and a partner in the patient endurance of the saints that they will practice and persevere in until Jesus returns. In this way, John is a fellow experiencer of trial with the church. He's a fellow experience or a fellow citizen of the kingdom of heaven with Christians. And he is a, a fellow waiter, fellow waiting one for the consummation of, of all things. What the church experiences in John's own day, and we'll look at, uh, in the next coming weeks as we work through chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches that are referenced here in our passage this morning, we'll look a little bit more at the, the historical context of those churches and some of the difficulty that many of them were going through. So John is a participant in what the church in his day is experiencing, and he's a partner in what the church throughout history has been experiencing. John is our partner in affliction and the kingdom in patient endurance. We learn, as John says, that he's exiled for the gospel because of the gospel ministry, because of his testimony to Jesus on the island of Patmos. Patmos is a a small island in the Aegean Sea, west and south of the mainland city of Ephesus. Exile was a common consequence for those who were suspected of saying or doing anything that would undermine or disrupt the social order. The emperor of that day, Domitian, uh, in John's day, was uh, kind of well known for exiling people. Even one of his own family members, a a nephew of his, was exiled uh, out of suspicion that he may be trying to rouse up uh, trouble for the emperor. John next identifies his state of mind prior to or when he receives this vision. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Being in the Spirit does not mean that John was in a strange trance or that he was practicing like transcendental meditation. 
Neither does it mean that John was on some crazy psychedelic drug trip. He's not dropping acid on the Isle of Patmos. To be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day means that he was under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit as he was worshiping on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, Resurrection Day. Finally, he introduces the Lord's commission, what God says to him. There is, he hears a voice that comes like a trumpet. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Already, we said uh, last week, one of the important things that we need to remember as we work through the book of Revelation is to mind the symbols. This is a heavily symbolic book. It's not a coded book. It's not coded language that we have to try to sort through to figure out what word equals what. And we got to use a special Christian decoder ring, which doesn't come in the back of our Bibles. And so we have to go to Barnes and Noble to buy the book that somebody published. It's not that. It's symbolic. It's not coded. It's symbolic. There's not a code to crack. There are symbols to understand. And we get one of these symbols early on, a voice like a trumpet. The trumpet... As we think, we may have visions of like, you know, Dizzy Gillespie in our mind, blowing his trumpet. The symbol of the trumpet here is not musical, although they were used in music, but not primarily musical here, but, but a symbol of, uh, a, a way of describing a voice that is loud and arresting. It's a, a voice that grabs the attention of those that hear it. It's a voice that, like a trumpet, heralds a person or a word of great import. I actually did some research, and I, I googled ancient Roman trumpets just to see what it might have sounded like. It was kind of cool. I encourage you, go do that. He hears this voice like a trumpet that, that snatches his attention, and then he hears the voice of Jesus, the commission of Jesus saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. The commission of Jesus to John is to write down what he sees and to send it to the church. This calling, this commission is repeated in chapter 1, verse 19. Write down the things that you have seen, he says, and kind of frames what happens in the middle. We talked about framing devices last week. We, we see it again here, this commission to write what he sees in verse 11. And then there's this vision of the glorious Jesus, the glorious son of man. And then uh, commission in verse 19, write what you have seen calling attention to, to us as readers that we need to pay attention to what John has written. This uh, commission to write what he has seen and send it to the churches is also repeated in uh, chapter 14 and chapter 19 and chapter 21. The emphasis of all this is that Jesus has a word for the church and John must write it down so the church can have it. Seeing the Lord's commission here in these first couple of verses... I just draw us this way to remember that revelation is God's word to his people. Write it down, write it down, write it down. Revelation is God's word to his people. So friends, we ought to read it. We ought to read it. I have a shelf and a stack of books in my office. Actually, I have a shelf and several stacks of books in my office and at home that are all books I intend to read. Books I picked up at conferences or books that were on sale or books that had a cool cover and I thought... Might want to read that one day. Most of these books have dust all over them. Some, friends, I hate to admit, I've never even cracked open. 
Most, if I'm being honest, I might not ever get around to reading in full. I have a whole bunch of books that I intend to read that, friends, I'm probably not going to get to. Revelation must not be one of these books for us. It should not be like all the vegetables that we know we should eat but never get around to eating. Likewise, Revelation, friends, is not all of God's Word to us. There are 65 other books of the Bible that are equally God's Word and equally important to us alongside Revelation. So just as we must not neglect this book, neither should we obsess over it to the detriment of our study and knowledge of the whole of God's Word. Some of us are tempted to see Revelation not like broccoli, but like gummy bears or ice cream, and we would eat it for every meal if given the chance. But of course, that would be unhealthy. So we need to read and work through Revelation. It's God's Word to us. God has promised blessing to those who do and who obey it. But we must also avoid the temptation to fixate on Revelation as though it was all God ever said to His people. Revelation is God's Word to His people. We ought to read it. Read it wisely. Read it in the context of the rest of Scripture. We have the Lord's commission to John in verses 9 and 11. Then we have maybe one of my favorite passages in uh, all of Scripture or just descriptions of Jesus in all of Scripture, the Lord's appearance in verses 12 through 16. The Lord's commission, the Lord's appearance. Verses 12 through 16, uh, uh, I just love for how they use symbolism to describe the risen Jesus, this beautiful symbolic portrait of Christ. As we read these words and as we think on them, I just want to remind us that this is not a vision of what Jesus looks like. This is a description, this is a vision of what Jesus is like. So his symbolic description is not to, not to give us a picture of what we'll see when we see him face to face. This is a symbolic picture that, that points to the very nature, the very heart, the very character, the divine attributes of Christ, not just the shape of his face or the color of his eyes. So on hearing a voice like a trumpet, an arresting sound, John turns around to see who is speaking. Where is this voice coming from? And he is uh, arrested, accosted by the sight of the Son of Man. So we're going to work through this vision and its various symbols, and we're going to try to do it just as quickly as we can. So buckle up. Here we go. First of all, John sees seven lampstands. Lampstands are not like the lamps you have in your house. There weren't light bulbs in that day. So the, these are stands, uh, probably gold, probably modeled on the, uh, or John's vision is, is probably reminiscent of the lampstands that were in the tabernacle and later in the temple of the people of God in Jerusalem. These were probably gold, maybe not, not altogether different in general structure from this microphone stand, a pedestal uh, or a foot at the bottom, a long post, uh, some kind of pedestal atop it. And then the lamp that was on top would usually have been kind of like a clay pot with a little, a little spout, a little lip that was pinched out out on it. And uh, those lamps would be filled with oil and then a wick of either uh, a wool or some kind of other organic material would be set inside the little lip there. And it was, and then the wick was lit and it would draw the oil up. The oil would burn and you'd have lamps burning, right? So imagine flaming, small little flaming pots on top of these lamps. There's seven of them around Jesus. And in verse 20, Jesus reveals what this symbol, what these lampstands symbolize. They symbolize the seven churches. Now already we have to mind the symbols and not just the visual symbols, but also the, the literary symbols. And here we have a literary symbol in the number seven. 
There are seven lampstands. And in a minute, we're going to see that Jesus holds seven stars in his hand. And as we work through Revelation, we're going to see, uh, read about seven seals that are opened and seven trumpets that play and seven signs that John sees and seven bowls that are poured out. You catching a theme? Seven is a number all throughout Scripture that symbolizes divine completion. Jesus stands in the middle of seven churches, the seven lampstands, excuse me, that represent the seven churches. But that number seven is more than just the literal seven churches that the, that the revelation is initially going out to and addressed to. It also symbolizes the church in all the world, symbol of divine completion. All the church surrounds Jesus, is centered on Jesus. And we see there in the middle of the seven lampstands as uh, John says, one like a son of man. That's interesting language, but here John is referring back to, as he will multiple times throughout the course of Revelation, uh, symbolism and imagery that was used in the prophetic book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, this is several hundred years before Jesus was even born, Daniel sees a vision of one like a son of man who appears before the Ancient of Days, before God Himself, who receives, in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man receives all dominion and glory. That title, Son of Man, is actually Jesus' own favorite name for Himself. He refers to Himself over and again as the Son of Man, over 80 times in the Gospels. There's no doubt that this is what John is saying is the fully divine, fully human Son of God, who was raised in glorified flesh on the third day after being crucified for sins, who ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign over the cosmos. There's no question about who this is standing among the seven lampstands. John says he was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This long robe is meant to resemble that of a Jewish high priest who would enter into the most holy place of the temple once a year to offer atonement for the sins of all of the people. The gold sash around his chest designating his royalty. He is a royal priest. He is a king and a priest. The risen and glorified Jesus is the pinnacle, the fulfillment of all of our hopeful expectation of these two things. A king to rule in righteousness and a priest to mediate our relationship to God. Revelation 1, 6, we read it last week, that Jesus is the one who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Of course, John is going to say to us that he is that divine king and priest who stands among the churches. We read that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Again, there's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 here, in the vision of the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days. A snow-white hair is a sign of age, obviously. God in flesh, the risen Jesus, is infinitely and eternally old. That's the picture. His hair is white like white wool. He is eternally old. He's been around forever. There's none older than him, but rather than growing weaker with age as we experience in our bodies and as our hair turns white, the image we have here of the Son of Man is one of unmatched strength and power. He is infinitely old, but friends, he is not weak. He is ancient and he is mighty. His eyes were like a flame of fire, John says. Uh, again, referring back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. The blazing eyes of the Lord Jesus. Again, not a picture of what his eyes look like, but a picture of what his eyes do. 
It's a picture of His infinite holiness and purity. That upon all that Christ sets His gaze is the revealing and purifying flame of divine truth. To look into His eyes is to see not only who Jesus is, but to know who we are. There's no hiding from His sight, and there's nothing that remains unseen or unknown by Him. That's what it means, that His eyes were like a blaming, uh, 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 blazing fire, a flame of fire. His feet now, John says, were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Again, we have reference to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. The appearance of the feet of Jesus as, as glowing hot bronze, as, as polished bronze, is to denote to the reader that his power cannot be withstood. Bronze is a strong metal. If it's been refined in a furnace and polished, it's something that can withstand a lot. And the fact that Jesus' feet are made of bronze means there is no one that can withstand his power. There is no one who can fight against him. He has ultimate strength. No one can stand in the way of Jesus as he brings everything in the cosmos under his submission. Everywhere he walks, he establishes his kingdom. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls? At Niagara Falls, they have the Maid of the Mist ferry. And you get on and it goes out right to the edge of the falls and you uh, get cool little souvenir parkas. But uh, several years ago, I went myself and just got on the boat with some friends and a whole bunch of other people. I just pack everybody like sardines onto this ferry. Everybody's talking and chittering and, you know, excited about what they're seeing. You see the falls from a distance. You go, oh, that's really neat. And you get closer and closer and the falls get louder and louder until you're right at the foot of the falls and the falls are deafening and no one on the boat is saying a word. His voice was like the roar of many waters, louder than the combined roar of all the falls and all the earth is the voice of Jesus. It's not just loud, though. It's also majestic. And when he speaks, his, his voice arrests the attention of everyone who hears, such that to hear his voice is to stop your own. In his right hand, he held seven stars. John says, verse 20 tells us that these stars are the angels of the seven churches. I'll just admit, this is kind of a difficult uh, symbol to interpret. The same word for angel in the New Testament can, can mean, and does often mean, messenger. The Greek word angelos can mean angel, like a spiritual, mighty spiritual being who lives in service to God, or it can be a messenger, someone who takes a letter somewhere. The thought here is that uh, John is probably not speaking about the angelic beings that watch over the seven churches, but perhaps the messengers who will carry the letters, the, the copy of Revelation to the churches. Or maybe these are the pastors or the elders, the leaders of the churches. It's hard to say, but these are probably not guardian angels that rest over churches, but, but human beings who, who represent the church in some way. Jesus, the risen Jesus, is glorified by the churches as he tends to their wicks. The light of the churches lights up the face of Jesus, but at the same time, he holds in his strong right hand of favor and protection those whom he has placed as leaders and messengers as representatives to his church. What a glorious word of encouragement to pastors, to leaders of churches, 
that Jesus has you in his own right hand. The hand of his power, the hand of his might, the hand of his favor. He holds those that he has called to lead the saints. From his mouth, John says, came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, if you're putting together a literal picture of what Jesus looks like according to the symbols, you get some kind of weird, trippy art that will uh, be entertaining at least. But this does not mean that Jesus has a sword for a tongue. The image of the spoken word of the glorified Jesus is an image of division. When Jesus speaks, his words cut, his words divide. The word of the gospel, the truth that sinners stand in need of forgiveness and salvation through faith alone in Christ is a word that divides. You either see your sin and your need for a savior and you trust in Christ, or else you don't see your sin for what it is, or you don't see Christ for the Savior that He is, and you go on either continuing in sin, thinking you've got it all figured out, or you go on looking for other saviors or saviors of your own devices, or you try to save yourself by your own good deeds. The word of the gospel, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is a word that divides. The word of the gospel that says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of Jesus Himself who says... I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me is a word that divides those who receive it and believe it and those who reject it and walk in unbelief. When Jesus speaks, he divides. He himself cuts between the believing and the unbelieving. He is a righteous and a truthful judge of the hearts of humanity and he wields the sword of his word with surgical precision. Don't miss this. Yeah, a word comes out of his mouth like a sharp two-edged sword. But he's not out there swinging it like I would with a broadsword if I were living in Braveheart's days, right? Slashing myself all up in the process. No. Jesus wields his word with surgical precision. He never makes a mistake. He's never going to nick an artery by accident. He's never going to cut a nerve that doesn't need to be cut. Whatever he does when his word speaks is to bring health and wholeness to those who hear it and submit to his word working on their life. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. His face, John says, was like the sun shining in full strength. This is to say in simplest terms that that there is nothing that surpasses the glory and majesty of the risen Jesus. Now, if Jesus' face literally shines like the sun in full strength, John would not be able to perceive all these other things about him. If you stare into the sun, very quickly, you don't see anything at all but the sun. And in fact, I would encourage you, don't look at the sun. I had a friend who, sorry, we're going to take a quick tangent because this is a funny story. had a friend who worked at a video game store a long time ago. And there was this lady who, she was a little quirky, would regularly come into the video game store. And my friend was talking to her. And one day she came in and just told him, she said, yeah, I'm going blind. I have holes in my retina. And he's like, Ma'am, I'm, I'm selling Mario, um, but uh, uh, what's going on? You know, he's just trying to engage. She said, well, I went to my eye doctor. He said, I got all these problems and, and, that, uh, and that it's probably from looking at the sun and I need to stop looking at the sun, but I just love looking at the sun. And he's like, lady, stop looking at the sun. 
So again, John is not describing a picture of what Jesus looks like. This is a picture of what Jesus is like. His face shines like the sun in full strength. His glory, his majesty surpass all things. His appearing is intensely powerful and his glory is hard to look on by those who are not holy as he is holy. And like the sun, though he is difficult to behold straight on, the way his glory shines upon everything else draws our gaze to him. A beautiful summer day when the sun is shining high in the broad skies of New Mexico and we see all around us, all the beautiful landscape that the sun illumines, we cannot help but eventually drawing our gaze to the sun and then have to take it away very quickly because, remember, you're not supposed to do that. But beautiful, glorious, majestic things draw our eyes to them, even if they're hard to look at. So it is with the face, with the appearance of the Son of Man. Here we have this beautiful picture of the Lord's appearing. His standing before John, his arresting presence, his mighty voice, his divisive but surgical word, and the fact he's standing among his church and holds their leaders in the hand of his power and strength and favor. And all we can do, all we ought to do in light of this vision right now is to fix your eyes on Jesus, the glorious priest and king of our salvation. What are we supposed to do with this? vision of Christ. Dissect all its symbols to figure and, and, and come up with some really interesting uh, artwork to put on our wall. No, 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 no. Before you do any of that, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Behold Him in, in, in the full. Remember this revelation, this apocalypse is pulling back the curtain on, on uh, to reveal spiritual realities that are going on in the midst of current events. This revelation, this apocalypse is, is pulling back the curtains to show us not what Jesus looks like, but what Jesus is like in all the fullness of His divinity. And here at the beginning of Revelation, we have this arresting vision of the risen Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, standing before John, a, a description of Jesus that beckons everyone who reads these words to look at Him. Look at Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In my more adventurous days and before I had children and, and thought about my general safety, I had a motorcycle. And on, on hard days, I really want another one. But before, but before I rode my motorcycle or bought a motorcycle, I took a motorcycle safety course or a rider course. There's some class stuff. Uh, test that you take, and then you spend several evenings on uh, l- really small bikes that, uh, you know, if you, if you ditch the thing, you know, you, you're going to be okay. You can't really uh, uh, get in a whole lot of trouble with them. You spend a, a week of evenings, though, on a, on a controlled course where you practice braking and speeding up and turning, and turning was always my favorite drill. Because you get to lean the bike a little bit. You get that feel. Yeah, those of you who have ridden motorcycles are like, yeah, baby, I know what you're talking about. That's good. Get the lean in there a little bit. But uh, turning a motorcycle is not like you think. If you turn the handlebars to the left because you want to go left, you're not going to go left. You're going to very quickly go right and into the ground. So there was a, a drill uh, that uh, our motorcycle safety uh, teachers taught us to remember to teach us how to, how to turn. And that drill was look, press, lean. Look where you want to turn. You actually, if you want to look left, you press left. 
and you lean left. That's just the way that physics on a motorcycle work. We have physicists in our congregation. You go talk to them about how it works. I can't describe it. Something about the gyroscopic effect. Look, 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 press lean. Why look first? Because on a motorcycle, like on a skateboard, like on a bicycle, like in your car, where you look is where you're going to go. And if you want to go left, but you look right, do you know where you're going to go? Right and into the ground, probably. When, when you're going through a, an intersection, you're turning your motorcycle through an intersection, you don't want to look just where, you're, where you are, you want to look where you're intending to go. Because where you're intending to go, there might be dangers, there might be stuff you need to avoid, that sort of thing. If you just look where you are, you'll never get to where you're going, you'll just probably end up in an accident. Look, press, lean. We're going to press, we're going to lean into Revelation to understand to seek to understand God's word to the church throughout all eternity for us here. But friends, before we do that, we've got to look. Look at Jesus. That's why this vision of Jesus comes right at the beginning of Revelation to show us what we must look at. There's going to be a lot of interesting sights along the way in this book. But friends, this is the one that captures our attention. This is the one that anchors our sight. This vision of Jesus, the risen Son of Man, in all His glory and majesty and strength, must be the one that we fix our eyes on. We've seen the Lord's commission. Write what you've seen. We've seen the Lord's appearance in all of His glory. We have in the last three verses, 17 through 20, the Lord's authority. The risen Lord's authority. This sight of Jesus causes John, as we read, to fall down as though dead. Indeed, this is the response of many in Scripture who suddenly find themselves in the presence of God or visited even by an an angel of God. And this is a natural and a right response to fall down in worship before a holy God, to know our own sinfulness and then to be transported to the presence of the eternally holy and the eternally just God is a terrifying prospect. Think about a a criminal accused of crimes that he he, he knows he is guilty of. And there is video evidence, an eyewitness testimony that condemns him. And all the, the idea of walking into the courtroom on the day of trial must be terrifying, knowing that all the things that you know are true, everyone else knows are true too. Friends, this is what it is to stand in the presence of a holy God. You know all of your sins. I know all of my sins. And the prospect of standing before a God who has never sinned is terrifying. So John falls on his face as though dead. And so here's John, undone in the presence of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, that's right, John. Kick him while he's down. No. Jesus places his hand on the shoulder of his friend and disciple. And he says to John, do not be afraid. I fell down as though dead undone by my sin and the knowledge of my sin and the presence of the Holy God. And what is Jesus, the risen Son of Man, in all of His glory and power and majesty with eyes that blaze with truth and a word that divides that comes from His mouth? What does He do to His disciple who falls down in worship? Puts His hand on His shoulder and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And He reminds John of His authority. Fear not. Verse 17, I am the first and the last. Jesus has authority over all things. 
This is nothing less than a direct claim to the divinity of Jesus. It mirrors the word of God the Almighty who says in verse 8 of the same chapter, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. There's nothing before me and there's nothing beyond me. I am all of it. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus, the risen Christ, says to John, I'm the first and the last. I have authority over all things. He says, I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority, not not just over all things in the cosmos, but he has authority over life and death because of his life and death. Keys, again, are a symbol. These are not literal keys to hell and Hades. There's one copy, and Jesus has got it, and if he ever loses those, boy, are we all in trouble. No. The vision of keys is a vision of authority. Keys have the ability to unlock, to unchain, or to lock and to chain, to open or to close. Jesus holds authority over death and Hades. That is, he holds authority over the greatest enemies of all humankind, death and the grave. Having risen from the dead, never to die again, Jesus has defeated death, and so he reigns over it. Moreover, he holds authority over the grave. Hades is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew place of the dead called Sheol. The significance of holding the keys to this place is to say that Jesus has power to deliver from the dead any who are imprisoned by the grave. You stuck in the grave? Good news, says Jesus. I got the key for that door. You imprisoned by death because of your sin? Good news, says Jesus got the key to that door too are you weighed down are you chained are you bound by the the guilt of your rebellion against god and you don't know what to do you don't know where to go you are stuck you're enslaved to your constant treason against the cosmic holy king of the universe good news says jesus i've got the key to that lock Jesus has authority over all things. He has authority over death and the grave, uh, over life and death because of his life and death. And he has authority to commission his written word. He has authority to command his servant John to write this down. Write, therefore, the things you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Jesus has authority as God to speak as God in authoritative ways to his people now, verse 19 says, Write therefore the things you've seen, those that are and those are not, that, uh, excuse me, those that are and those that are yet to take, the, those that are to take place after this, uh, is, let's just say, a difficult verse <laughs> for Revelation, a key verse, maybe, is depending upon how we understand what Jesus is saying to his servant John in Revelation 119, plays a lot into how we interpret the, the visions that, and the sequence of visions that take place over the rest of the passages, uh, the, the rest of Revelation. Write what you've seen, what is, and what is to take place. There are essentially two histor- predominantly historical, or predominant ways historically, I'll get it out of my mouth, that people have understood this verse as it pertains to how we interpret the rest of Revelation. The first way is to, to read verse 19 as a, with a kind of a chronological or a futurist view. This sense sees verse 19 as unfolding the general pattern and the outline of the rest of the book of Revelation. So those that read verse 19 this way would say, 
when Jesus says, write down the things you have seen, he's talking about all the stuff that John just wrote from verses 1 through 18. Those are the things that you've seen. When he says those that are, he's talking about Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. These are things that are taking place right now. And when Jesus says, write down those that are to take place after this, he's talking about all the stuff from Revelation 4 through 22. Those are events that are going to take place after the time of the... Um, uh, of, the, uh, of the first century church into some future sense, either working itself throughout the, his, the, the history of the church of Jesus Christ in the West and as the gospel influence goes around the world, or speaking uh, particularly about future events, maybe even beyond the time of the church age. So there's this chronological futurist view. The things that you have seen is Jesus' glorious appearing to John. The things that are are the letters to the churches. The things that will be is stuff that's either going to happen later on in the life of the church or way beyond the time that most of us are dead and gone anyway. The strength of this view is that it approaches Revelation 119 with the intent of, I think, finding the plainest reading of the text, which leads to an interpretation that the visions of Revelation unfold in a chronological manner. If you are prone to read Revelation 119 with a chronological or futurist kind of perspective, you're, you're probably of the, um, of the disposition that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, the seven bowls, then the millennium take place in that specific chronological order and there's no repeating of events that, uh, that, that John is describing in his vision. These are things that take place in sequence. So the strength of this view is that it, it tries to read Revelation 119 as plainly as possible. I think, though, this view is, is beset with a, at least one significant weakness. Uh, this view tends to read Revelation, which is a heavily symbolic text. Remember last week we said bold, italics, underlined, heavily symbolic, all over the place. This, this perspective tends to read Revelation, a uh, heavily symbolic text, too literally. Like it's trying to corroborate events in Revelation to speci- or, or images in Revelation to specific events and specific characters throughout the course of history to chart our progress through Revelation. In this way, the repeated or as we'll say, recapitulated events of Revelation, we'll see there are several catastrophic events in Revelation that all seem to indicate the end of the world. And the question is, how many ends of the world are there? Are there four or five in Revelation or is there just one? Those who who tend to read uh, from a chronological or futurist event don't see recapitulation. They don't see John returning to images from a different perspective necessarily throughout Revelation, but he's talking about things in sequence. And in so doing, uh, they require these uh, events to be seen as distinct chronological uh, uh, milestones uh, from one another and and not as restatements or, or revisited illustrations of the same vision. Uh, from, from di- in different times as John works through. So that's one way to read Revelation 119. The other way, predominantly, that Christians have read Revelation 119 is not necessarily as a chronological uh, description of, of how things are going to play out, but as sort of a double reference to both present and future events. That to uh, write down what you have seen, Jesus is saying to John, essentially he's summing up the whole vision that John is about to see. The things that are and the things that are to take place. The vision, what you're about to see, are, is a pulling back of the curtain to spiritual realities that are taking place in the life of the church today and are going to take place in the life of the church until Christ returns. It's an already not yet sort of view. 
So this view sees 119 is referring to the overall dual, already not yet dual nature of Revelation. In this way, all of the larger visionary sections of Revelation are describing both present and future realities for the church in all ages. Now the strength of this view is that when held up against the events of history, we can see the broad truths of Revelation evidenced in every age of Christendom. There have always, over the last 2,000 years, been faithful Christians persevering in faithfulness in the face of persecution and death for their belief in the gospel. Over the course of the last two millennia of Christian history, there have been governmental agencies and governments that act in beastly ways in league, either consciously or unconsciously with Satan, to, to try to undermine the work of the gospel in the world. As we work through Revelation, we're going to see some of these symbols, some of this symbolic imagery, and we'll see how how it had real significant meaning to the church in its day. And as we think historically, we're also going to see that, well, these words seem to have significance for the church in every age. As this book is almost certainly meant to apply to its original audience in the first century, viewing Revelation through this kind of uh, double meaning, future, uh, present and future sort of perspective honors the intention of John that, that, he, that, that this word, that Revelation means something for the church in the first century. All of Revelation, not just chapters 2 and 3, all 22 chapters mean something of significance with unchanging meaning to the church in that day and to the church in every day. This view also honors, uh, uh, honors the intention of John while maintaining the same significance for the church throughout history and even into the future. Now, I've already made too much of this point. But without making too much more, let me just say that any preacher or teacher of Revelation has to make a choice as to the primary way to understand and communicate the meaning of Revelation 119 and its import for the rest of the text. I think the second view is probably the best, the double meaning, present and future uh, meaning of the text throughout all of it. Now, and that's going to be largely the lens through which we work through the visionary sections of the rest of Revelation. Now, let me just say this. Christians have been uncertain as to, the, as to exactly how to view Revelation for the last 2,000 years. And friends, I'm not going to settle that debate in this series. Some of you may disagree with me about how to read Revelation 119 and the rest of Revelation. That's okay. Uh, my intent is to faithfully handle the Word of God, to, to proclaim its never-changing truths to us and apply them to our lives that we might be edified and motivated for faithful perseverance until Christ returns. That's the purpose of Revelation. I also want to bear in mind the original context, that this was a, a book that was written to a church in difficulty in the first century and to churches that have faced, or to the church of Jesus Christ throughout history, that have faced difficulty in every age for 2,000 years. This being the, the second view, being what I think is the, the better view, this is the, the perspective that we're going to take, that I'll take through most of Revelation. Um, I'm not interested in having debates in the foyer on Sunday morning about why I'm wrong. We can do that in my office during the week, okay? Uh, but I've just given you a preview. This is where we're going. I don't think at the end of it, I don't think that whether you read 119 chronologically or you read 119 with kind of a, uh, a double, double meaning, present and future, already not yet sort of, sort of impulse, I don't think that if we're handling Revelation appropriately, wisely, that we're going to come to different conclusions by the time that we get to the end of Revelation, okay? We're all going to be on the same page. 
Revelation is about the victory of the Lamb. It's about the coming of the Son of God to consummate this entire universe to His kingdom to renew all that we see and touch and know and feel. New heavens, new earth where we'll dwell with Him forever, glorifying His name and magnifying His name throughout the cosmos into infinity and beyond. Sorry for the Buzz Lightyear reference, but that's where Revelation is taking us, right? To a vision of the glory of Jesus and our eternal state, our, 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 our place with Him in eternity. Don't lose sight of this, though. We might disagree about Revelation 119. I hope we agree more than we disagree, but that's okay. Don't lose sight of this. Jesus Christ, the risen and glorious Son of Man, has commanded this word. He has authority to command his word to be written to encourage his church. That's why Revelation's here in our Bibles. Not to entertain us, not to titillate us, not to tantalize our imaginations. It's here to motivate us. It's here to encourage us. It's here to edify the church and give us what we need to endure with patient perseverance until Christ comes again. So in light of that, be encouraged and strengthened for endurance, Christian. Be encouraged and strengthened for endurance. The one who commands our worship is the one who lays his gracious hand on all who love him and says, do not be afraid. Don't miss this picture of Jesus at the beginning of this book. We're going to look at a lot of other things that are going to be tempting to distract our sight throughout Revelation. We're going to look at them, but not too long. We're going to look at Jesus the whole way through. Friend, are you anxious about Revelation? When you consider the imminent return of Christ and the end of this age, do you start breathing faster? Does your heart rate increase As you look on Jesus and all His power and His glory today, are you freshly aware of your sins? Knowing that He has all authority and He's the righteous and returning judge, are you conscious of your standing with that judge? Your relationship to Him? Friends, there are a good many things that cause our hearts to faint when we approach this book of Scripture. But do not lose sight of the one who encourages those who love Him with His powerful hand and authoritative voice saying, Do not be afraid. If you believe on the one who has died and is alive forevermore, dear friend, you have nothing to fear in this book or in all of life. Do you know the Son of Man, risen and glorious this way, as that eternal King and judge and priest who alone can mediate your relationship to God the Father to make you right with Him? Have you trusted in him, his life, his sinless life, his death in your place, his resurrection from the grave as your only plea for innocence or for forgiveness before God the Father? If so, if you have trusted Jesus this way, you have the hand of favor of the one with power over sin and the grave, over death and Hades on your shoulder to say, dear friend, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid.